You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. Wait a minute. Do you still think politics is boring? Well, not when you can say fun words like cacus. Yes, it's fun words like cacus and more. With the intellectual, intersexual, and intersectional, Nicole Sandler on NicoleSandler.com. It's a thing we shouldn't fear so much But the right-wing grudge Would send our debt reeling Though they raised it several times for Trump Without a bump It's a needed procedural vote That they've turned into a ransom note For the spending they've already agreed to But we won't give in to blatant threat dealing from a group whose rude behavior shows they're a bunch of schmoes. McCarthy's wish list he couldn't define when Biden said, show me yours, I'll show you mine. They pout about some fake woke agenda. It's no joke. If we don't raise the debt ceiling, our economy becomes unglued, and the country's screwed. We could easily get out of this mess if we'd actually fund the IRS. Trump's the one who made the 
deficit mushroom Just like his junk So let's debunk the debt ceiling <laughs> If their share the rich and big companies would pay Then we'd be okay This crisis today Would soon go away I hope these shows go away Please go away Lauren Mayer! Yeah! Wait, don't stop the video. Just oh, 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 wait, 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 don't stop the video yet. If you enjoy yeah. these okay. weekly videos, right. I hope you'll consider supporting them so I can keep them going. You can do that for as little as $2 a month and you get fun rewards. Check out my Patreon link and other support options in the description below and I promise I'll keep helping you laugh at news that might otherwise make you cry. Okay. Thanks. Okay, hey, I had to let Lauren Mayer get her plug in so she can do it. I didn't have to. Welcome to a Friday, everybody. Lauren Mayer. You gotta love that, right? Debt ceiling. Sorry, I shouldn't do that. Um, uh, yeah, I thought we'd get started with the song, such as it was. Thank you, Lauren Mayer. Um, it is a Friday. This was a big week, right? So much happened, and I'm still kind of exhausted. I guess I can't do you know, nights out like I used to. So to recap, <laughs> just so you know, I told you about Friday night, we saw the Young Dubliners. Tuesday night, saw Bruce Springsteen. I didn't tell you that Thursday night, because David went with me to, you know, to see the Young Dubliners. He wanted to see Kenny Wayne Shepherd, who was in town. And so we went. Uh, it, late nights, look, for somebody who didn't leave the house pretty much for like three years, um, three nights out in a week. No wonder I'm exhausted, but that's okay. It's a good exhausted, right? This weekend, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, Super Bowl is Sunday, and actually, listener Dar is in town, and we're going to go out and hang on on Sunday while, you know, most people are watching the Super Bowl, but neither one of us have any interest. So, you know, there's that. Hey, if you're in South Florida and want a Super Bowl alternative on Sunday, let me know. Maybe we'll have a little gathering <laughs> and I'll be rested by then. So I got to tell you, things here in Florida are insane, as you knew. Um, uh, hold on. What? Um, uh, I'm not even going to feel I got a spam text to the studio line somebody people want to give me money my credit is good so but they want to give me loans which i don't believe them and they spam me with this kind of stuff anyway um there's you know trying to figure out what i'm going to do today i have today's interview already done and um we taped this on wednesday morning now wednesday morning I was sleep deprived because I saw Springsteen Tuesday night. So um, we, you know, I I had this interview planned for a while and, and I wasn't going to reschedule it, um, but I'm going to run it today because it's on a really important topic and that is police reform. It's something we need. And our guest is a guy named Neil Gross. He is a former police officer. He used to be a beat cop in Berkeley and or Oakland, you know. The, up there in Northern California, in the Bay Area. Um, he now is a sociology professor. He's the author of three books, including one that's coming out uh, in March. 
I believe it's in March. Yeah, in March. Um, and it's called Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. And he also has an article on the current issue of The Atlantic Monthly um, in which he talks about two other books uh, along the same lines about police reform. So, you know, obviously after this month, we had um, um, uh, Tyree Nichols beating death. You know, there was another man in California whose whose case didn't get as much publicity and probably because Tyree Nichols' death was so much more violent and, and I, I don't want to say more awful because this other man died too. Um, and, and what his, uh, his name was Keenan Anderson. Keenan Anderson was killed by LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, who tased him incessantly. In fact, I have this clip still here from last month, and it's something that I, I hadn't played. And you know what? I'm going to play it now because, again, um, Keenan Anderson was killed by police, and, and his is a case that we're not talking about. And yes, there was video. Yeah, stop it right now. Turn over. Turn over. I'm going to tase you. Turn over. I'm going to tase you. Turn over, He's got a cop you. standing on him. He can't turn over. Or his cop elbow watch, on his neck. He can't turn over. You're trying to George Floyd me. And he says they're trying to George Floyd me. Stop it, I'm going to tase you. Okay, they stop have it, him, They have him stop detained it, on the ground. They, a cop please, has his please, hand please, around his neck. Please. Please. Ah. Right, I'm going to tase him. I'm going to tase him. Ah, and he's tasing him. And you hear him say, they're trying to kill me. They're tasing him nonstop. Stop it. Stop it. Don't resist. No. Stop it. And I'm going to, you'll hear it. I'm taking the the video off the screen. This happened on January 3rd. January 3rd. He's not resisting. He says, I'm not resisting. The cop has the teaser taser on his back physically. They have him down on the ground and they keep tasing him. And that man died. They, they're saying, stop resisting. They've got him on the ground with the taser in, on him. And they're saying, stop resisting. He can't resist. And they keep tasing him. And, and he died. Keenan Anderson Remember that name, because you didn't hear about Keenan Anderson, most likely, because we were all talking about Tyree Nichols, as we should be. But we should also talk about Keenan Anderson. So stay tuned, because we are going to deal with this subject and our, our, our incredible need for police reform. Cold-blooded murder. Yes, um... Uh, what does that say? Is there any wonder why people hate the porkers? Oh, the porkers. Okay. I I didn't know where that comment was going. Um, all right. To the phones. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Proud Scale in Alabama. Hey, Proud Scale in Alabama. What's up? I have great news for a change. Really? We could use good news. Uh... 
a lot, a, a, a number of black students had a demonstration and walked out of class at Hillcrest High School right outside Tuscaloosa. What happened was is that they are not teaching to them uh, slavery and civil rights and American history. Mm-hmm. Also, the school is 55% black with only three black teachers out of a populate student population over a thousand wow. with no black administrators. Wow. And the kids and are saying enough already and they walked out. Enough already. They walked out. The NAACP is going to show up at the next uh, board of education meeting. And mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting. Oh, good. Good. Well, good. This is what needs to happen. And I wish, you know, that was happening here in Florida. It's happening next door in Alabama. Thanks for letting us know, Proud Scale. When I tell you what's going on uh, here can today. Can I talk a little more? Sure. I think this is going, things like this are going to happen more thanks to the kids at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. They really got the ball for things like this rolling, unfortunately, after that shooting. Right. And you know the anniversary is coming up in four days, oh, Valentine's Day. And so down here, you can oh, already feel it, um, you know, because it's an ongoing, there's an ongoing reminder. I mean, we drive by that school every day. It's it's right there. The Sawgrass Expressway is one of the major um, uh, throughways here. And, and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School is right there at the Coral Ridge exit. And you can't miss it. And the building, the freshman building where the massacre took place, has been replaced. They built a new freshman building. But that old building is still standing. It still has everything that was in it on that day, 2018. And it's just still there. I think it was 2018. Um, and, and you can't miss it. It's like a, a morgue, you know, shrine or something. I, I don't know what they're waiting for. The trial's over. They should make a memorial there. But anyway, I digress. Well, there's light, there's hope. And uh, can I tell you a Springsteen story? It's just amazing. Okay. Um, the last Springsteen concert I went to was on his last tour. He went to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I was not really up on getting to it because I just had my thyroid surgery mm-hmm. and they were going to give me the cancer test results. And I thought maybe it would be better to sit home. Okay. Yeah. I thought just go because you're going to be irritated if you sit home right. just waiting for that. Right. So right, I I took the bus to Atlanta, and right before I got in the bus, I got the phone call, and I was cancer free. Cool. And then you keep went to see faith, Bruce. Have, yeah, keep awesome. the faith. Have a great day. Thank you, uh, thank you, Proud Scale. Always good to hear from you. Um, you know, here in Florida, Florida. Uh, I came across an article today. You know, uh, there. I thought I, b- I brought the paper in here, but you know, if you knew me, you'd understand why I'm. I'm just. I'm all over the place, and now I can't find it. But that's okay because 
I was going to tell you about how the College Board is saying what Florida is telling you is bullshit. Um, we changed the curriculum of that course not because of Ron DeSantis's threats, but because of our advisors. And and this was a pilot program, and we were gonna, um, you know, uh, modify it before it goes into general release. Don't listen to DeSantis because he's a fucking liar. So that. Um, uh, that I was going to share that with you. And then I opened the other newspaper, the South Florida Sun, that was in the Miami Herald, which we get the print paper delivered. Uh, the other paper down here is the South Florida Sun Sentinel. And let me share with you the headline that I saw as I opened it. State questions Broward schools use of ADL anti-hate program. All right, Broward is Broward County where I live, the bluest county in the state. Still is, but not as blue as it used to be. ADL is the Anti-Defamation League. Yes, it is a an organization that was started for, you know, to defend Jewish people against anti-Semitism and hate. And believe me, the ADL knows the hate of which they speak. And so Broward Schools, I guess, has been using an anti-hate program that they put out. They teach, you know, um, uh, anti-hate. They teach, uh, they they teach the opposite of hate. Anyway, let me let me share with you this story that I found. An anti-hate program used by Broward Schools is facing the scrutiny from the Florida Department of Education, which questions whether it violates state law related to critical race theory and LGBTQ issues? Are you kidding me? Mike Blackburn, the department's inspector general, sent a letter to former superintendent Vicki Cartwright, and she's the former superintendent because Ron DeSantis fired her. That's the story for another day. Uh, on, November thir- on February 3rd, asking for information and clarification regarding its December 13th approval of the Anti-Defamation League's No Place for Hate program. No Place for Hate program. The letter said the office received a complaint alleging that the program covers off-limits topics. It's called No Place for Hate, yet there's a hater out there who complained, probably because it was from the Jews. The correspondence alleged that the No Place for Hate curriculum provided by the ADL contains topics such as critical race theory, sexual orientation, and gender identity ideology in violation of state laws passed last year. Then this is the fun part. It says the letter doesn't name the complaint, but a woman named Deirdre Ruth, Deirdre Ruth, a parent of a special needs child, said on Facebook that she filed a complaint about the program. During a January 24th school board meeting, she chided the superintendent and school board about the program. Quote, Do you know it violates laws? Do you know it teaches gender ideology to K through third grade? Did you know it teaches our children critical race theory? Ruth asked the school board, did you even look at it before you passed it through the system and said this is a great program? The state is now asking the school district for copies 
of the No Place for Hate curriculum, the dates of the training, grade levels taught, and, quote, information on all steps taken by the district to ensure the curriculum conforms to state laws. Oh, it goes on. The letter references two laws passed last year. The law dubbed Stop Woke, which prohibits instruction of critical race theory, which views racism as systemic in the nation's institutions. It's a concept historically taught in colleges, but it has become a catch-all term adopted by critics who say it's divisive to define people as oppressors and oppressed based on their race. (coughs) Excuse me, the other is the parental rights and education law, which was dubbed by critics as don't say gay. Bans the instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity in grades K through three and older grades if deemed to be not age appropriate. Really? Uh, Valerie Wanza, who is now filling in as superintendent because DeSantis fired the other one, responded to Blackburn on Wednesday that there is no curriculum for no place for hate and there won't be one in the future, damn it. She said it's a designation that a school gets when it completes three pro-social anti-bullying activities. She said the district has another contract with ADL for a program called A World of Difference that uses training materials that are being created in compliance with state laws. The materials have not been presented to Broward County Public Schools leadership at this point, she wrote. Once the materials and resources are presented to Broward County public school leadership, they will then be submitted to the superintendent's screening committee for further review. And she said, um, these materials will not be utilized in any way until such time that they've been approved by the screening committee and deemed to be compliant with all Florida statutes, State Board of Education rules, and Florida standards. And it goes on and on and on. But let me tell you something. This is nonsense. This is all due to one complaint from one bigoted woman, one, the one mentioned, uh, what, what was her name? Um, uh, the person on Facebook, Deirdre Ruth. So what did I do? Well, I went on Facebook and I found Deirdre Ruth. And Deirdre Ruth is apparently one of the founders of a group called Broward Concerned Citizens Uncensored. How ironic is that name? It's uncensored, but she wants to censor the ADL. So I I made a post. I I sent her a message because she doesn't allow posts on her personal Facebook page. So I sent her a message. But on the Broward Concerned Citizens Uncensored page, I wrote, So this group and its founder, at Deirdre.Ruth.7, that's her Facebook address, are against no place for hate? Wow. Why do you hate people who are different and hold different views than you do? Why do you want to dictate what is and isn't taught to my children? Shame on you. Florida has become a fascist state and you are enabling it. I think I shared it on my timeline on Facebook, but feel free to post to the Broward Concerned Citizens Uncensored Facebook group. And tell old Deirdre what you think of her activism. All right. Robert from Naples is on the phone. Robert, I couldn't get to you yesterday. Hi there. Hey, that's okay. So what's on your mind? You got a little little reverberation there. I I hear myself in, (laughs) like, echo. Sorry. Okay. Okay. 
No, 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 that's good. Yeah, so what's on my mind? He's, he's, he's like just, he's, well, I don't even know what you want to call it. Uh, I, uh, these infomercials that they're doing for Fox programming for, you know, at the Capitol there with all these, uh, you know, the, the show trials that they're trying to pull around. Pull yeah. Up, pull oh, the, uh, they're, they're the house, the house hearings. Yes. Those things. No, actually it's, it's, it's actually it's a wine fest, you know, cause all they're doing is whining, you know, and, and if I was on that panel, I'd be like, where's the cheese and crackers at least? You know, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. We're going to cry and whine. Let, let's, let's, eat, let's, eat, you know, let's have something to eat. Yeah. We um, also, we also have to give Jamie Raskin so much credit because he's everywhere and thank dog for Jamie Raskin. Yes. Oh my God. And God bless him. He's wearing, you know, and he's a, with the cancer and he's still going forward. He's not taking days off. That God bless him. I know. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I was going to, I wanted to say is like, uh, you know, Hunter, Hunter Biden's laptop, Hunter Biden's laptop. Hunter, you oh, know, I know. If I was on that panel, I'd be like, okay, listen, if I say Hunter Biden's laptop, will I get a couple seconds on Fox News? <laughs> well, is that what we're doing here? I'm Hunter Biden's laptop? Hunter hey, Biden's like, laptop. Yeah, I a, yeah, it was either your show or another show. It all seemed some story. They all, all the day blended together today. But somebody brought up, uh, you know, that these, these are compromised, this Hunter Biden laptop. You know, who's to chain of command? I think it was the word. And yeah, yeah, you know, like if they found anything on there, I would say, hey, I didn't put it there. I don't know uh-huh. what you're talking about. Somebody, somebody along the way dropped that on there, you know? And you know what? That's not even mine, you know, because mine didn't have that, I would just, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we got, we got, we got the other family stealing billions. We got, uh, you know, getting attacked, uh, patents from China. But, you know, Donald Trump lost because of some Hunter Biden laptop didn't get a, didn't get any airtime on Twitter, which, by the way, was his fucking, uh, you know, FBI, and it was his, uh, tw- you know, Department of Justice. It was all, it was not like Biden did anything. I mean, this is, they, they did it, and then they're coming to find out that, you know, they, they, they whined and cried about other things even more. I mean, come on, these people. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Listen, I, Listen, uh, I feel like I went to your concert too. You know, <laughs> you know and uh, good luck to you. You got to see Bruce. And I was kissing my son. I got my son. He's thirty years old. I said, Bruce Springsteen across the you know the state over there. We could have gone. Because I didn't think he'd want to go. <gasps> what do you mean? You know, oh, like, no, you got to ask. You get those things you just uh, can't. You because then you wind up having not gone. But but. That said, it was at the Hard Rock Live, which only holds 7,000 people. Tickets were exorbitantly expensive. Luckily, my sister knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. And we got, we got these amazing seats, and they didn't cost us a dime. So the best of all worlds. That's why I'm just so exuberant still. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad I didn't go. Not for the ticket prices. I could afford that. Right. I would have dropped a lot of money in the casino. <laughs> oh, I hear you. No, I stay away from there. That's, no, I, that's save, I save myself money. I just throw in a CD and listen. Yeah, and let me tell you something else. That, that that and anybody who is like bemoaning the fact that they can't go to the shows, there is a website. It's called Nugs N U G S, like Nuggets Nugs dot net, and they have live concert audio. They have some live streaming concerts too, but they've got a lot of Bruce concerts up there from throughout the years. I think they give you they, but here's the sweet. It's like twelve ninety five a month or something, and you can listen to unlimited shows. And they have, I think, the first three shows from the tour already posted. So from Tampa to Atlanta to Orlando, the show I saw isn't there yet, but it probably will be in a matter of de- uh, days. They're going to post every show's audio, so you can listen to it. 
Um, and here's the, the the beauty of it is you get the first month free, a trial basis, and, and you can cancel at any time. So you can go to nugs.net. Yeah. You can sign up for a free thing. You get a free month and then just cancel, and you get the rest of the month for free. But listen to your heart's yeah, content. Yeah, you know, but here's the thing you don't get it with those shows. I go If I go to the show, I'm going there to check the chicks out. You know? I'm, I'm married on that. <laughs> well, I'm you like, know what, Robert? Oh, I don't check the chicks out. I could care less uh, about, yeah. and I could care less about the guys. I'm watching the band. And what's missing for me on listening to an audio show is seeing the exuberance of the band because they're always having a party. Yeah, but is it the same without Clarence? Is it the same with? with it is, and they and and they. Well, of course, uh, there's part of it missing, um, but uh, uh, they, you know, Jake Clemens is Clarence's nephew, and during Tenth Avenue Freeze Out, they do a tribute to Clarence up on the video screen. Not only to Clarence, oh, but right. Danny Federici, who was the original organ player, who also died a few years ago. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, Robert, I gotta go. What? Yeah. What? Uh, never mind. I was going to ask about the guy from Sopranos, Stevie. Uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Steve Van Zandt. Miami Steve, little Steven was, Van Zandt. Yeah, yes. was he? Was he there? Of course. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. Have a good weekend, and thank you for what you do. And you're the, you know, thanks for letting me in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it. my pleasure. Thank you for calling, and thank you for listening. By the way, there was a um, a search, an FBI search of Mike Pence's house. They found another classified document. Don't you know? Just saying. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on. Um, but it is time. It is that time. Um, I got to hit this interview, or I won't have time. So, by the way, I already had my smoothie today because I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait anymore. I had um, a mix. Uh, if you go to blendjet.com, they have some smoothie mixes. They have, a, I guess, a partnership with this company called 310 Nutrition, and they have shakes. Blendjet has their own jetpack shakes. So there's a lot of different things you can try. I tried one of the 310, 310 shakes today, and, and I just I couldn't hold it in. I had to drink it. It was delicious. Um, the thing I love about the Blendjet, too, is how convenient it is. You can take it anywhere, uh, and, and it's relatively quiet. I mean, for a blender, it's really quiet. And shaker bottles suck. You know, there's just all kinds of... Um, of, of reasons that it, it's a wonderful machine. It's convenient. It fits in the cup holder in your car. You can throw it in your gym bag, in your, in your um, briefcase and take it to work. Um, and there's a special going on now. So if you go to blendjet.com and use the promo code SENTBYNICOLE12, you get 12% um, uh, 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Blendjet.com. Com. I know you're seeing the ads everywhere. So the next time you see one, check it out because these things are awesome. And then go to uh, use the promo code sent by Nicole 12. You get 12% off and free two day shipping. And then you can enjoy your smoothie each day like I do. All right. Um, uh, okay. Um, uh, so uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I recorded this interview Wednesday morning. Um, I was. Um, I was still quite not hungover because I don't drink, but sleep deprived and still on sort of a high from seeing Bruce Springsteen uh, the night before. But you know what they say, the show must go on. And that it did. 
Joining us on the line now is a former police officer from Berkeley, California, Neil Gross, who's now a professor of sociology, a frequent contributor to the New York Times and author of two previous books. He's got a new one coming out next month called Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs defied the odds and changed cop culture. Neil, uh, unfortunately, good timing on the book. Um, yeah, this is a, an issue that um, it, you know, it just needs to needs to be fixed and needs to be fixed uh, quickly. And uh, there are um, just too many incidents that remind us uh, on a on a regular basis of you know the persistent problems with policing in the U.S. Very much so. And in fact, the book will be out on March 21st. In the meantime, you have a current article in the Atlantic about two other books that are out on the subject. Obviously, this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. And um, I understand the president did mention um, uh, the need for police reform last night in the State of the Union address. In fact, um, uh, Tyree Nichols' parents were guests uh, for the address last night. Um I didn't get to see it in real time. I'll be spending the day watching it before the show this afternoon. Uh, we're taping in the morning. Did he address it in any meaningful way? It was certainly a, a powerful and profound moment. Uh, and I, I can't imagine having the, the wherewithal to, for, for Tyree Nichols' parents to, to be there and, uh, and such a short time after, uh, after, his, after his funeral. Um, and to be there calling for major changes. Uh, I thought it was a, a very um, powerful and heartfelt uh, sentiment that, that uh, was expressed. You know, I think that the president is in a, a tough spot. There are things he can do, but he's, of course, limited by uh, the current composition of the Congress. I think that clearly there's going to be a, an effort to reintroduce the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You know, it's not clear whether uh, there will be enough support for it, uh, given its current makeup. Um, I mean, the hope is that there will be. You know, I think I wrote the Atlantic piece, though, and, and my book uh, on the idea that, you know, even if we can't move forward with police reform on the federal level, and I hope that we can, there are still things that individual departments can do, that citizens can do, that chiefs can do to make things better in the interim. Uh, and, you know, this is an issue on which very often we feel a sense of despair. It's been with us with, uh, for so long. But the fact is that there are changes that can be made uh, and that can be made uh, right now. And, and that's what I aim to talk about in my book. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I, I want to start with every time I hear about a case like, you know, the, the murder of Tyree Nichols. Um, and I realized that there is something on the books called qualified immunity. It just, it makes my blood boil. Qualified immunity, for those who don't know, basically says that a police officer cannot be held personally responsible for any anything they do while on the job. Am I overstating that or is that basically it? I mean, I, I, I think I would uh, I would maybe uh, qualify that statement just a little bit. I mean, my understanding of it, I'm not a, a legal scholar, um, but but my understanding is that uh, qualified immunity uh, basically is a, a protection that says uh, that uh, you, you cannot sue an officer uh, for uh, violating someone's civil rights um, unless it's been very clearly established in previous case law that exactly that situation uh, down to a very, very uh, precise, precise and minute detail uh, 
is in fact a, a violation. Um, and it's a very hard standard to, to meet because the way that the courts have interpreted uh, uh, those situations, that case law, uh, is that they've often required uh, the situation to be almost precisely uh, like it was uh, in some previous case when, you know, any reasonable person would say, you know, this was an inapplicable and inappropriate use of force. Uh, I think there are other there are other issues uh, around qualified immunity. Uh, it's very common, for example, for uh, many police departments to indemnify their officers, uh, which means uh, for cities to indemnify their officers, which means that if their um, employees uh, are sued and there's a judgment against them, typically uh, the cities will will cover the costs of those judgments or or of any settlements. So there's a whole complex spectrum of issues there. You know, certainly from the standpoint of law enforcement, uh, the concern is that if you eliminate qualified immunity protections, the fear is that there'll be this floodgate that's opened of lawsuits against cops, uh, which would, uh, on the one hand, you know, potentially bankrupt cities and also uh, dissuade many uh, individual law enforcement officers from, from going into the occupation. So there's certainly been a lot of pushback from from law enforcement groups uh, and from uh, from some uh, uh, and, and from some community members as well who are concerned about this. And obviously from some Republicans, because Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, was doing the negotiating for the Republicans. And apparently the breakdown was of his refusal to even put qualified immunity on the table. So there, and that for for Cory Booker, who's negotiating for the Democrats, uh, there's nothing else to talk about unless we can deal with that. You know, I think it's a significant change, and I, and I do think that if uh, there was a, a greater ability for um, for people who've been wronged by the police to hold them accountable, hold them responsible, you know, it would certainly create a strong financial incentive for. Uh, for officers and for departments to, to change their behavior. Um, so qualified immunity seems like an important change. Uh, there are states that are moving forward in this regard. Uh, for example, Colorado, not long after George Floyd's murder in uh, 2020, passed uh, police reform legislation and included in that uh, was legislation restricting qualified immunity for police officers in Colorado. You know, I, I think the, the, there's some evidence there uh, that the, those qualified immunity, re- reducing those qualified immunity protections isn't going to make the sky fall for law enforcement. There's mm-hmm. still plenty of cops in Colorado and they're experiencing uh, staffing shortfalls, but they don't seem to be any worse than other states that haven't changed those protections. You know, so there's some precedent for thinking, you know, reducing the qualified immunity protections could be could be valuable. Uh, you know, that said, it's not the be all and end all of police reform. Uh, and even if we can't get it passed, uh, and I certainly hope that, that we can, there are still really important changes that departments can make uh, and that, that they should make uh, to improve the quality of policing that they offer to their citizens. Now, Neil Gross, you come at this from uh, experience on uh, two different sides. You were a beat police officer in in 1993, 30 years ago, you were a rookie in Berkeley, California, and you pulled over a black man for running a red light. Um, And tell us what happened at that stop. Uh, So this was, uh, as you said, many, many years ago, I became a police officer right out of college. Uh, It's something that I'd wanted to do for for a long time. You know, there's a misperception uh, or uh, out there that people go into law enforcement for the wrong reasons, that they, you know, are out to uh, control people, harm people. And I suppose that's possibly true for some. I think the research has shown, and my experience certainly was that most people who went into the job did it for the right reasons. That is, they they wanted to help their community. They wanted to reduce crime, uh, make their make the streets safer. Uh, that that's why I went into it. You know, the ninety early nineties. This was a time when the violent crime wave was really at its peak um, in California and throughout the nation. Uh, and you know, I wanted to uh, help 
help the city that I'd grown up in, which was which was Berkeley. And then I, I had a secondary goal as well, which was uh, to do my part to make the criminal justice system more fair, uh, more equitable, uh, less racist. Um, and, uh, you know, I found myself uh, not too many months after I had finished field training uh, on on a very uh, difficult stop. Uh, and the stop was just a routine stop for a minor traffic violation. You know, we were taught in the police academy that when you stop a car, it's very dangerous. Uh, it's one of the most dangerous things the police can do. That's what we were taught. Uh, we were taught that uh, everyone has to remain contained in the car. Hands have to be visible at all times. Uh, and we were taught that if somebody in the car, whether a driver or a passenger, violates those rules, then, then that's a sign that something's really awry. So I stopped a car, uh, pulled it over, and the passenger got out uh, and refused to get back in uh, and ended up um, you know, putting my hand on his shoulder saying, get back in the car. Uh, and a fight broke out. Um, that's and it kind of escalated from there. And you say one of the cops on the scene drew a gun, and at the last second, the man surrendered and he gave in. And so it it de-escalated mostly because the 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 guy cooperated. But you say if he hadn't, things could have ended very differently. You know, I I think that uh, I. Looking back on this many, many years later, I, I wish that I had found a better way to de-escalate the situation myself, uh, approach it from a, a more calm mindset. You know, certainly the passenger, as I look back on it, was was also at fault. You know, there's no excuse for uh, for, for for punching a police officer. Um, but the whole situation I, I came to think about afterward was very much influenced by the the, the cop culture that I'd been um that I'd been learning, learning in the academy for for five months, and then learning uh, in field training and on the streets. Look, Berkeley was a liberal city, progressive city, mm -hmm. uh, pretty well educated police force. Uh, so it's not like it was filled with with the same kind of cowboy cops that you would find uh, in other surrounding jurisdictions. Um, Oakland had a very notorious uh, police department, for example. Uh, but there were strong elements uh, in the cop culture in Berkeley uh, of uh, of a kind of warrior mentality. Uh, the idea that you know you shouldn't take flack from anyone in the streets. The notion that uh, policing is uh, such a dangerous occupation that everyone poses a potentially lethal threat to you. You know, and I think as a young officer, uh, an impressionable young officer, I wasn't in a position to, uh, I didn't have the experience to recognize, you know, when when is something really a uh, profound and lethal threat and, and when is it uh, just something that needs to be talked through? So I've, I've certainly thought about that uh, moment for, for many, many years. I'm sure. Now, this was 1993, so it had to have been shortly after the Rodney King, where I was living in Los Angeles at the time, I, I lived, I worked at a radio station on La Cienega Boulevard where the, you know, we were not far from uh, Florence and Normandy where the rioting broke out and the fires reached us and they evacuated the whole radio station. I remember the terror in that city that weekend. Um, did that have an effect on this traffic stop and how you treated the people that were in the car? I, I think it, it must have. Um, it was certainly in the background for everything that happened in law enforcement. You know, I, I went to the police academy um, in, in in Sacramento. Um, many cities are small enough that they don't have their own police academies. And so they'll send officers to uh, academies at, at larger cities. 
but I went to the police academy run by the city of Sacramento, which was at that time held on the, the academy was held in the grounds of the California Highway Patrol Academy. And, you know, I remember uh, at, at some point during um, our academy training, some of the CHP officers who were, were just about to graduate from the academy or maybe had just graduated were were, were put on buses uh, and were sent down to Southern California to you know assist with crowd control. Wow. So certainly that was in the background. Uh, and it was part of the reason that I, I went into policing, because I thought, you know, here was this great injustice that had taken place, you know, and I wanted to be to be part of the change. So I, I think that was certainly in the background from from my point of view. Uh, and. I think that certainly there was a long history uh, in in the East Bay of uh, of uh, racism uh, on the part of the police uh, toward the black community. So, uh, you know, whether that was in the minds of the people that I stopped, um, who were both uh, young black men, I don't know. But I have to assume that that was kind of part of the background to the whole thing was a highly combustible moment. So we're speaking with Neil Gross. So back 30 years ago, you were a beat officer on the streets in Berkeley, California. You're now a sociology professor at Colby College, and you've got this book coming out in just a few weeks, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. So how did you go from police officer to college professor? Um, yeah, but long story. Um, you know, I, I did the job for a relatively short time. I was just on the streets for uh, 11 months. And uh, you know, I kind of had a couple of realizations at, at, at one point, uh, a much older officer, um, who I won't name, um, not an officer I, I liked or admired very much, uh, took me aside at a, at a 7-Eleven, uh, one day when we were, we were getting coffee, this was late at night. Uh, and he said, you know, gross in, in 20 years, you're going to be just like me. And, and I think that was, uh, that was a, 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 a push, a sign for me, uh, that, that this maybe wasn't the road I wanted to go down. Uh, and then I, I still had an interest in trying to change policing. And I had the realization that, you know, maybe it would, I would be able to, um, push the department, push policing in a better direction if I was able to do some research on, on you know, what exactly the problems with police culture were. So that's why I went to graduate school. I went off to uh, Wisconsin, um, never, basically never experienced snow before, uh, having grown up in California. Uh, and um, uh, and that's what I plan to study. I ended up going a different direction for, for many years, but happy to uh, come back finally to this crucially important topic. And it is an important topic. So for your book, you, you sort of did three case studies. You 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 examined um, the, the police departments in Stockton, California, Longmont, Colorado, and LaGrange, Georgia. Why did you pick those? And I, I, it's a big question, but what did you learn? Yeah. You know, so much of the focus uh, on policing these days is on on what's wrong with policing, and and I think that's entirely appropriate. I mean, those those problems are are serious uh, and and well known. Uh, the number of uh, civilians shot by law enforcement each year, um, racial inequalities in those in those killings, uh, racial disparities in arrests, and really throughout the law enforcement enterprise, uh, a whole host of problems. So those things are are well known. Um, I wanted to look at uh, three departments that were doing things differently. Uh, not that they were necessarily doing everything right, but three departments that uh, had managed to experiment uh, with changing the culture of policing. And, and really the core of the book is the idea that, you know, it, it, it's really important that we make new regulations, new laws to restrict police behavior. Uh, the George Floyd Justice Policing Act, a whole host of state laws, that's crucially important. But unless you change the culture of the occupation, the, the norms, the values, the worldview of cops, you know, on the street, 
you're still going to have problems. Uh, so I was interested in three departments that uh, had really done really significant work to change that culture and, and push it in a new direction. And uh, all three had in very different ways. In Stockton, California, I found a chief who'd spent 10 years uh, changing a, a really uh, hard charging police department into one that was at least somewhat more focused on uh, on equity uh, and uh, respect in interactions with citizens. In Longmont, I found a chief uh, who reminds me much more of a professor than a police chief uh, who uh, built out a, a, a highly progressive police department uh, and really one that was focused on uh, the social good uh, and on you know, doing whatever he could to make the police department uh, uh, a source of uplift for the community. And in LaGrange, Georgia, completely different situation. They're a chief uh, um, a Republican police chief, um, uh, reluctant, as he describes it, supporter of Donald Trump, uh, managed to change a, a once a really racist police department into one that put uh, racial equity and the preservation of life as among its its foremost values. Uh, so for me, these were important, interesting cases, and they're evidence that policing can change. Uh, it's hard. It's difficult work, but it can happen. Now, the, 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 the piece you have now in The Atlantic is titled Police Reform is Not Hopeless, and you spotlight two other books kind of generous with your own book coming out next month. But what what did they come to the same conclusions? Well, you know, I, I think that the books have had a different focus. The, the first one uh, was a really excellent uh, work, uh, a study by two journalists uh, uh, called The Writers Come Out at Night, which was of uh, particular interest to me, given that I grew up in the East Bay. It's a, a book about the history of policing in, in Oakland, California. Uh, and the the main focus was on uh, this small group of officers uh, from the the late 90s uh, who called themselves the Riders, um, and it was a group of officers who uh, the allegations are that that they engaged in you know, uh, uh, very cruel acts of brutality, uh, that there was uh, corruption at play. Um, they uh, several of them stood trial and were um, were not found guilty. Um, but uh, the book chronicles uh, what happened. What happened when a, a rookie cop um, was training under them uh, and ended up becoming a whistleblower. And it documents how the result of the writer's scandal was that Oakland was put under a, a, a kind of a negotiated consent decree, uh, where it was basically forced to change. Uh, and the book, I don't think, is necessarily a, a hopeful tale on, on the whole. But, you know, the conclusions that the authors come to is that over the course of, um, you know, almost two decades, two decades uh, under this consent decree, um, being pushed by outside forces, OPD, did get better. Uh, it did improve. So I think there's evidence there that that, that policing can change even a, a department that um, uh, has once been in, in very dire straits. You know, you mentioned the, the East Bay again, and, and I, I've, I've been trying to remember the name, and now it, it just popped in my mind, Oscar Grant. Um, that's, you know, it seems like every city has its own Oscar Grant story. He was shot dead in a subway, if I recall co correctly, by Oakland police. Um, this is a problem, and, and it's good that you're taking a look at it, and it's good that police departments around the country, to the extent they are, are dealing with this. Um, we already talked about qualified immunity. I've got to ask, what effect do you think this recent law, I guess, that allows police departments to get surplus military equipment sent to them, um, maybe encourages this kind of behavior. Do you think that's an issue? I have a problem with it. it militarization of police forces, I think, is the wrong way to go. Does it have an effect on the, on the police force? 
So I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. I, I think that there's, I, I think of those as two separate questions, right? Yeah. One, is it, is it, is it good that, uh, you know, some surplus military equipment flows into the hands of police? And then the separate question is, uh, what does it do to, to police culture? You know, police culture, uh, has focused on, uh, ideas of toughness, uh, strength, again, not taking flack from anyone on the street, um, uh, you know, watching out for your brothers in blue, that kind of thing, uh, for, for many, many years, long before the, really the flow of, uh, surplus military equipment to police departments sure. uh, started. So I'm not sure that that's really changed much. And, and in the lives of the average patrol officer, you know, that equipment doesn't make much of a difference. It barely shows up. Um, you know, th those things really come into play mostly in, um, scenarios involving, uh, SWAT teams, yeah. uh, or, um, in some instances involving, um, uh, crowd control situations. So from the average patrol officer's perspective, I'm not sure that that's the main contribution, uh, to the, 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 the culture of policing, which is, which is so problematic. Um, but I think that there's an argument certainly to be made that, uh, you know, cities uh, and communities should have the right to determine whether uh, they want that uh, kind of equipment flowing into their into their departments. Sure. Uh, you know, I I will say, um, you know, some of the things that the police deal with are are very dangerous. One of the stories that I recount um, is a, a horrific incident that took place in Stockton um, uh, not long after one of the officers that I study, a guy named Drake Wiest, uh, started on the job. This was a um, a, a a bank robbery um, in which uh, the, the robbers uh, took um, three women uh, hostage uh, and uh, led cops on a chase that lasted for almost an hour through the city of Stockton at, uh, at extremely high speeds, um, approaching you know 100, 100 plus miles an hour. Um, and all the while, um, one of the robbers was uh, shooting a, a semi-automatic weapon out the, the back oh window God. at the cops. The cops mostly held their fire initially, um, uh, but uh, at, at you know, toward the end of the chase, um, the you know one of the the key things that uh, they they wanted to try to do was to uh, you know bump the car to to kind of take it out, and so they they brought forward a, an armored vehicle called a Bearcat, um, which is uh -huh. you know heavily heavily armor plated vehicle, um, and you know in in the end that that didn't work, um, but it's hard to know you know what to do in those kinds of situations in the in the absence of that kind of equipment. Um, now the Stockton cops, uh, in the end, um, a difficult and dangerous situation, uh, utterly mishandled uh, the, um, the the chase, and uh, the consequences ended up being uh, pretty disastrous, and, and kind of, uh, very much disastrous. Uh, my point is just that there are situations, there are occasions when that kind of um, heavy equipment is is absolutely necessary, but it's also uh, highly misused. Um, certainly, you know, most of the uh, most of the search warrants and so on uh, that that those vehicles are, are called out for um, don't need anything like it. Right, right. You know, and it and it was, I think, a, a misguided um, slogan adopted by some on the left. And look, I'm a, a very progressive, uh, you know, uh, but even I balked at the the directive the the defund the police uh thing it 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 just rubbed me the wrong way even though i know what they were saying my thought is if you have to explain it then you need to find a different slogan because they weren't saying defund the police they're saying utilize the resources better so uh, for instance not defund the police but maybe um fund squads or or division that can deal with um 
traffic stops, for instance. You don't need a cop with a gun for a simple traffic stop, and sometimes they escalate because the cops are overly zealous or because they're armed and they come at, you know, the 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 the, the stopped vehicle in a in menacing stance that there becomes a, you know, a, a bad situation where if it's somebody who does not have a gun and it's pulling someone over for a simple traffic violation, it's not going to escalate because that doesn't happen. I know I'm, I'm again oversimplifying it, but do you understand what they were trying to get at and why the the directive to defund the police was so harmful? You know, I think there's no question that, that most Americans in this country want policing to change. I think that polls have, have indicated that at least since George Floyd's murder and, and in the wake of um, Tyree Nichols's uh, killing, the, the polls have indicated exactly the same thing. Um, most cops know this as well. I remember uh, going to a conference in New Orleans. Uh, this was before George Floyd's death. Uh, and uh, New Orleans was a, another department with a, a really terrible history of policing. Um, but they've been put under a federal consent decree and were in the process of changing. And so they'd invited uh, a lot of law enforcement executives from elsewhere to come and check out what they were doing. Uh, and I remember uh, the one of the deputy uh, chiefs at the time stood up, you know, white, white uh, uniform uh, to indicate that he was one of the executives. And uh, and he said, look, you know, we, we all know that we need to change. Um, you know, we're at the point where uh, if we don't change policing ourselves, other people are going to change it for us in ways that we don't like. Uh, so I think there's a strong recognition on the part of you know many law enforcement executives uh, that that things need to change. Things need to go in a different direction. You know, I, I, I do think that the um, the calls around defunding, there's a lots of different um, uh different proposals and ideas that were part of that. Uh, and, you know, I think some of those, um, uh, you know, rephrased uh, would make more sense. You know, yeah. for example, the idea that we might want to uh, take some funding and, and put it toward uh, bolstering uh, mental health services, uh, toward social services in communities. You know, I think those are things that, uh, you know, many cops would support. I, I know in LaGrange, Georgia, this very conservative community, uh, one of the places that I studied, um, you know, many of the officers there, uh, all quite conservative, said, you know, we need more support with with mental health. Yeah. Uh, you know, they don't feel uh, necessarily trained to do that uh, themselves all that well, although they have training. Uh, and, and so they'd like to see uh, the city spend more money uh, on those kinds of things. Um, so th things like that, I think, aren't particularly controversial. The point is that there's plenty of, of middle ground where I, th I think people on both sides of the political aisle could could come together and meaningfully agree that, you know, things aren't working right. We need to change something up. Uh, I hope we're on the road to real reform. I worry that the partisan bickering in Washington is is not helpful. Uh, do you think the answer is on a national level or is that at the local police department level? So policing in this country is, is pretty different than policing in at least some other nations, um, like everything else uh, in the U.S. It's, it's highly decentralized. Um, you know, the, the U.K., I think has 43 different police forces. We have something like 18,000. Um, and I think from the standpoint of bringing about reform, uh, you know, that's a double-edged sword, right? It makes it harder in some ways uh, because it's hard to get everyone standardized. Uh, if you identify a really good way of doing things, a, a better way of um, uh, of having, uh, you know, restrictive use of force policies, it's hard to get all 18,000 agencies to move. And by the way, 90% of those agencies are really, really small. Um, on the other hand, uh, 18,000 different agencies means that you've got a lot of room for experimentation, yeah. uh, a lot of different 
little departments that can be experimenting, trying different things, but none of it amounts to much if you don't learn about the successful experiments. And that's really what my book is trying to do. Uh, it's not aimed at cops. It's aimed at, 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 at general readers and, and, and citizens alike, because there's a lot that, that we can do to push our local agencies to change. So even in the absence of federal legislation, uh, I, I think there's a lot of room that a lot of work that we all can do uh, to make our local police forces uh, what we hope for them to be. Good. So it's three um, case studies in the book, Walk the Walk, how three police chiefs defied the odds and changed cop culture, which is the desired outcome, right? So uh, the book will be out in March 21st is the actual release date. Uh, Neil Gross uh, currently has a piece in The Atlantic spotlighting um, a, a few other books on the subject, but with different approaches. Uh, Neil, thank you so much. This is a really, re- obviously, really important topic that we need to get a handle on because we, I don't think we can take another film. And that's basically what George Floyd was, and that's what Tyree Nichols, these videos that we're now seeing. Um, and once you watch them, you can't unsee them. I've seen two Innocent men murdered by police, and I will never get those images out of my mind. Um, I think it's important that I watch them. I I can't say I'm glad I did, but for my work, I had to. Um, And and you know, maybe every adult should see them to see what is happening and to see how important it is that we fix this. You know, I'll tell you that um, uh, shortly after George Floyd's death, I was in touch with uh, an officer from Stockton, California, uh, an African-American officer. Um, and he told me that um, he initially hadn't uh, hadn't heard about the video. It was not initially uh, apparent to him. Uh, and then he heard about it on, on social media and some friends from some friends of his. Uh, and 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 he watched uh, he watched the video and um, and he said he you know, as as everyone else was was uh, just absolutely horrified and and he said for for a good few uh, moments there um, uh, while he while he broke down he questioned uh, his choice of occupation he questioned whether he'd been fooling himself uh, for all the years he'd been in law enforcement uh, whether this was just an occupation that was inherently racist and brutal. Uh, and then he told me um, he he had a realization. Um, he had a realization that the reason he got into law enforcement was to keep um, what had happened uh, to George Floyd from happening to anyone else, at least under under his watch. Uh, and you know, I I think that uh, I think most people in law enforcement, many know that things have to change. The question is, what's that change going to look like? How are we going to get it done? Uh, you know, ultimately, the police are supposed to be a democratically accountable institution. Um, they, they have an obligation to uphold the law, but they are also beholden to the citizens that they that they work for. Uh, and if those citizens are demanding change uh, and a police department is um, utterly resistant to change, uh, then th- that's a problem that needs to be fixed. And I, I think the time is now to to engage in that change. There you go. The time is now. It's past now. We need to we need to fix this. Uh, Neil Gross, thank you so much. Thanks for writing the book. We look forward to it again. The release date is March 21st. Walk the walk. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Nicole, thanks for having me. There you go. An important subject. Uh, you know, not one I'd usually choose for to end the week on Friday, but uh, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to get it. Was, it's been sitting since Wednesday, and I just wanted to share it because we need we need this to never happen again. You know. 
All right, with that, we're done. On uh, Monday, we'll be back Monday, I'll be joined by Jennifer Bendery of Huffington Post, who has a piece up there about Leonard Peltier. The more things change, the more they stay the same. All right, um, tomorrow, there's Sunday, there's a football game or something. If you like that kind of stuff, enjoy it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll see you Monday. Uh, anyone who's going to see Springsteen, rock, rock on. Go. Enjoy. All right. I'll leave you with the news and see you Monday. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. If you listen carefully, you might hear the sound of the other shoe dropping. Former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating Donald Trump and his role in January 6, 2021. Specifically, the special counsel's office wants Pence to testify about his interactions with the then-president leading up to the 2020 election and the day of the insurrection. This move is one of the most aggressive yet in a two-year investigation. Now, headed by special counsel Jack Smith, who's also overseeing an inquiry into Trump's handling of classified documents. But Pence is a key witness to the events of January 6th, as rioters or insurrectionists were trying to prevent him from overseeing the certification of Trump's loss to President Biden. He's described post-election interactions with Trump in a memoir that could help override executive privilege claims that the former guy has used to delay or block testimony by people who served in his administration. Well, the Biden administration on Thursday said that the balloon the U.S. shot down over the weekend had equipment enabling it to collect intelligence signals. Go figure. U.S. officials said the balloon was part of a global military-linked aerial surveillance program that China has used to gather information on the military capabilities of more than 40 countries, of course, with the particular focus on the United States. The Biden administration cited imagery from American U-2 spy planes as evidence of the activities of China's fleet of surveillance balloons that have flown over five continents. The House on Thursday voted unanimously to condemn Beijing for its brazen violation of U.S. airspace. Well, this is a sign of the fox guarding the hen house. The House Judiciary Committee, chaired by Jim Jordan of Ohio, began its subcommittee's hearing on the weaponization of the federal government on Thursday. Americans have concerns about the double standard at the Department of Justice. Americans have concerns about the disinformation governance board that the Department of Homeland Security tried to form. Over the course of our work in this committee, we expect to hear from government officials and experts like we have here today. We expect to hear from Americans who've been targeted by their government. The ranking Democrat on the committee is the delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Stacey Plaskett. But there is a difference, my colleagues, between legitimate oversight and weaponization of Congress and our processes, particularly our committee work, as a political tool. I'm deeply concerned about the use of this select subcommittee as a place to settle scores, showcase conspiracy theories, and advance an extreme agenda that risks undermining Americans' faith in our democracy. You might remember Representative Plaskett from one of the two impeachments of the former guy. She was a law student of Congressman Jamie Raskin, who actually appeared as a witness on the first day of the hearing. 
and schooled the panel, most notably Marjorie Taylor Greene, about the Constitution, among other things. Other witnesses on that first day of this hearing were Republicans Ron Johnson, Chuck Grassley, and newly turned independent and Fox Not News darling Tulsi Gabbard. And as we detailed in Thursday's What's News report, that was only one of two so-called hearings that the House Republicans oversaw this week. Jamie Raskin, a witness at this one, also was the ranking member at the earlier House Oversight Committee hearing on Hunter Biden's laptop. Though to his credit, the Democrats honed in on the problems with Twitter, putting the issue of the so-called laptop to the side. Mr. Ross, let me start with you. Did I hear you correctly to say that there were thousands or even hundreds of thousands of counterfeit Twitter accounts set up by Russian propaganda and disinformation for Vladimir Putin to pump his poison into the bloodstream of American social media? Is that right? That's right, sir. And that's not just past tense. Those accounts are active on social media today. This is an ongoing campaign. Well, we should be having a hearing about that. I appreciate your alerting to us uh, what's taken place. Well, the earthquake death toll in Turkey and Syria has now risen to more than 21,000 people dead. Turkey had confirmed 17,674 deaths as of late Thursday. Syria has reported 3,377 deaths and thousands of injuries. And I have a feeling the lower number is just due to a lack of resources in the war-torn country. The powerful back-to-back quakes, 7.8 followed by a 7.5 magnitude quake, hit in southern Turkey right near the border with Syria. Thousands of buildings collapsed on both sides, and freezing weather has hampered rescue efforts and dimmed the hopes of finding more survivors, although a rescue crew pulled a 45-year-old woman from the rubble in one town in eastern Turkey 72 hours after the quake hit. More than 78,000 people have been injured across the two nations in the quake. And finally, over the past couple of weeks, we've mourned the deaths of some of rock and roll's biggest stars. Well, today, we look at the loss of the sanity of some of those. In recent months, we've talked about Eric Clapton and Van Morrison, both going the anti-vax route. Now, a man who's been controversial for a while has taken it to the extreme. Roger Waters, a founding member of Pink Floyd, spoke via video link to the UN Security Council on Thursday. The invasion of Ukraine by the Russian Federation was illegal. I condemn it in the strongest possible terms. Also, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked. So I also condemn the provocateurs in the strongest possible terms. There, that's got that out of the way. Waters had been invited to speak to the UN by the Russian delegation. The Ukrainian ambassador to the U.N. was the last to speak and used his time to respond to Roger Waters. He said, quote, It is ironic, if not hypocritical, that Mr. Waters attempts to now whitewash another invasion. How sad for his former fans to see him accepting the role of just another brick in the wall, the wall of Russian disinformation and propaganda. The ambassador concluded, quote, Keep strumming the guitar, Mr. Waters. It suits you more than lecturing the Security Council on how to do its job. No flying pigs here, please. I got the good news. 
And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener supported and I can't do it without your help. For more information, check out NicoleSandler.com and please click on those donate buttons.